This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. How's everybody today? Y'all doing good? Have a good weekend? All right. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. And today, we're right in the middle of a series that we've called The Best Of. Throughout the month of July, we invited you as uh, the people who attend regularly our church to vote on your favorite series that we did over the last year. And then what we did is we actually took the top five and have chosen to revisit those throughout the month of August. And so... Uh, we, we kind of added a twist. This is something we've done for several years. So uh, we added a twist this year that instead of me uh, coming back and preaching the same stuff, uh, what we wanted to do this year was to revisit uh, a series uh, and, and have our overseers. And last week we brought in uh, another guy who's planning a church in, in Philadelphia, Bernard. Y'all loved him. All right, so this week we have uh, the privilege to hear from Jonathan Pearson. Jonathan is, is nationally, I, I think, one of the best emerging young leaders that we have in the church. He is a, a, a prolific blogger. His blogs are, are read by thousands of people all over the world. He's on staff at Cornerstone Community Church, which was one of the first churches to breathe life into our the, the vision that God had given me for this. So let me just tell you this story. When, when I when I felt like God was calling us to come back home to Albemarle and plant in a smaller town, start a church in a smaller town, I had, had lunch with a mentor, and he said uh, his, his graduate work was in planting churches like this, and he said, yeah, I don't think that'll work, but I read about an organization called The Sticks, and it's a group of people who have started churches in, out in The Sticks in smaller towns. Jonathan actually is the director of The Sticks, and so he has a, a big heart for churches that are like us, trying to do something that is relevant, makes sense in smaller towns throughout the country. And we're honored to have him with us today. So, Jonathan Pearson, would you come on up and bring us a word today, brother? Thanks, man. Me too. Let me grab this. How we doing? Everybody good? This morning, I was told to talk about something being freaky. Um, at first, I thought, I can't talk about that in church. Um, and then uh, I decided that this, this, this was perfect, right? I mean, I, I, was, I was standing there, and I was thinking um, about what's, what's freaky is that a church that's, how old are y'all, Kevin? Three years old is meeting with over 300 people on a weekly basis in a small town in North Carolina that I have to be honest, at one point I was pretty sure we were lost because I was thinking, they don't put anything out here. And so what's freaky is the fact that you guys can have 300 people in a theater that shows Magic Mike the night before. And those 300 people can hear a message that's bigger than some male people but has lasted for centuries and can literally change eternities. That's what's freaky. What God is doing at Vortex, I hope you know, is not normal. It's not normal for you guys to be sitting here week after week doing what you're doing. It's not normal for a church like this that's three years old to be reaching the kind of people you're reaching. That's not normal. That's bigger than normal. That's better than normal. 
it's not normal for, 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 for this, these many volunteers to get up at 5.45. 5.45 on a Sunday. People where I'm from, they say Sunday's their day to sleep in. They wouldn't get up at 5.45. We can barely get them to church by 11. But there's people here that are at 5.45. They're setting up because they know people need to hear a message that can literally change their lives. That is not normal. That's freaky. That's weird. What's weird, too, is that my, my father lives in the upper part of South Carolina. I'm originally from a little town called Greer, South Carolina. I don't know if y'all know where Greer is. So I left Greer, South Carolina, and I went to Orangeburg, South Carolina, because I wanted to see explosive growth, right? Um, and so but I'm originally from the upper part of South Carolina, from Greer, South Carolina. And my dad, who, who, who works in the school system, works for maintenance in a school system, he has a lady that he works with. And he was telling her that I was actually coming here today. And she knew she was from North Carolina. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not from too far from there. And she said, what, what's the name of the church? And he said, well, he said, you know, they, they, he didn't quite know your name. He said, but they, they meet in a, in a movie theater. And as soon as he said that, he, she's like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard about them. I've heard some really good stuff about what they're doing. So I want you to know that what God is doing through Vortex is reaching and is changing people's view of the church, is changing people's view of God, is changing people's view of Jesus, not just in Albemarle, but across the southeast. It's literally changing people's view. And so this lady who doesn't have much of a church background has now heard about a church in her, near her hometown that's reaching people for Jesus in a movie theater. That's not normal. That's freaky. That's weird. That's not, that's not supposed to happen, but as that song we just sang, the ground began to shake. God does things that aren't normal. They're freaky. And I love that God is using this community of believers to change lives, to change hearts, to change eternities. I love that God is using a humble man like Pastor Kevin to lead a church that's changing lives and changing eternities and changing futures, putting families back together. That's not normal. That's freaky. That's weird. Jesus talked about that. He said, they're not going to know you. It's going to be a little freaky. It's going to be a little weird, and that's okay, because we don't want God doing normal in our midst. We want him doing something freaky. This community of believers that you have assembled here is something special. You are reaching your city. Don't take that for granted, because the second you begin to take it for granted, it's going to get less and less. Keep pressing on. Keep following. As, as, as Paul said in Philippians, I press on to take hold of that. You haven't, you haven't taken hold of all that God wants to do through this community. You haven't taken hold of everything that, of all the people that Jesus wants to transform by the message that this church sends out. Keep pressing. Keep doing freaky stuff. Keep doing weird stuff. I want to talk this morning about our thoughts and how as believers in Jesus Christ, we're called to have these different thoughts from the people around us. I think this is one of those things that's been widely um, ignored by the church for a long time. The way we think. I mean, the Bible actually talks a good bit about, if you, if you go through and you do, you do a search for, for thinking or mind, the Bible actually talks a good bit about how our minds as, as, as Christ followers should be different. How our minds, the way we think, the things that we dwell on, the things that we let in, the things that, that, that we allow to, to, to sit in so that they come out of our lives, that they're supposed to be different. That they're supposed to be weird. But I think and, and just my honest opinion, but I think the church forgets this because we don't want to turn it into you think positively and good things are going to happen. So that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning, but I do want to talk about the fact that our thoughts, our thinking, 
is supposed to be a little freaky. Before kids, I thought I knew how to parent. Like before I had a child, um, I could tell you if your child was doing something, I could tell them, I could tell you what you were doing wrong with your child. Like I saw kids acting up, and I could have told the parent what they were doing wrong. I thought I knew before I had kids, right? And then we have a 16-month-old, but then you, you and, and I know what you're thinking. You ain't seen nothing yet, and, and I understand. Some of you are thinking, I have, I have four. You ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait. And see, you're thinking negatively. And I'm going to talk about that. I'm just kidding. You're going to get convicted of that in a minute. I'm just kidding. But then, then, then we find, found out that, that we're pregnant. And so immediately you begin to, to, to know um, what you're supposed to do, right? Because you've read the books. You've seen the advertisements. You have the gun at Target for the register. And so you think you know what to expect, right? I remember uh, Melissa, my, my wife, and I, we were, we, we were registering for things at Target, and there were these bottles that were, were, were really popular, and they were supposed to be like the thing. Like, you have to have these bottles. It's, it, it's the most natural way to feed your baby. We're not going to get into all that. It's the most natural way to feed your baby. You, you have to have these bottles because these bottles are going to, like, revolutionize. Now, we didn't know. I mean, we, did, we didn't know it was like having a baby, so we thought that these bottles were actually going to change the way we fed our baby. And we're thinking, hey, we need our baby to eat. We need our baby not to cry. We're in, right? And so we, we, we registered for these bottles. As a matter of fact, we got some of a different kind of bottle. And before we had the baby, we took them back because we thought that we knew what we needed. Sure enough, a few months in, he doesn't like the bottles that we thought he should have wanted. He actually wants the ones we took back. So we have to go buy all new bottles, right? I mean, down to, down to like the crib sheet, Everything you think you know. You think you know what it's going to be like. And then, and, and then it, as he grows and as he gets older, you think you know. You, th- you think it's going to go like this. You think it's going to go like that. And then it never goes exactly the way you thought it was going to go. But our thoughts, right, All our thoughts change who we are. Our thoughts change our actions. The, the things that we think change how we behave. They're powerful. The stuff that we think, don't underestimate what's going through your head. You may be thinking... Nobody knows about that. That's somewhere deep down inside of me. But your thoughts eventually change what you do, and they change who you are. They're powerful. A philosopher way back in the day named Descartes, any philosophy, any philosophy students in the house? Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, I mean, what do you do with philosophy, right? You just think and talk, which sounds like pretty much what I do as a pastor. Um, but... Well, a philosopher named Descartes, centuries ago, I don't know the exact date, I didn't look it up, but he kind of coined this, this phrase, and most of us have heard this before. He said, I think, therefore I what? I think, therefore I am. Look at the person beside you and say, you think, therefore you are. Look at the person on the other side that you forgot and say, you think, therefore you are. And what, what, what he meant was this. He meant that the fact that you and I, that we have the ability to think, that our thinker works, that our brain can come up with ideas and come up with concepts and come up with philosophies and can kind of make some decision-making processes. The fact that we can think means that we exist. It means that, 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 that we're still alive, that we're still breathing, that we can do something with it. The fact that you and I can think, because he knew, he knew how important our mind was, the fact that we can think is the very evidence that we exist. I want to take that a little step further this morning. And I want to say this. I want to say... I think, therefore I make. Look at the person beside you, the one you talked to first last time, and say, I think, therefore I make. 
Because our thinking, our thinking affects everything about us. It affects our attitude. It affects our faith. It affects our actions. It affects our relationships. It affects where we have our place of residence. It affects how we feel at our job. It affects how we parent our kids. Our thinking affects everything we do. So if we think, therefore, we make. I think, therefore, I make. There's a story in Matthew 9. If you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Um, but there's a story in Matthew 9. I just kind of want to set this up. For, for those of us that have, that have been in church for a little while, if, if you haven't, that, that's fine. You'll, you'll completely understand. But I just want to set this up and kind of give some backstory for, for, for what Matthew 9 holds before we get to this story. But at the very beginning of Matthew 9, God, uh, Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, the tax collector, the guy that he wasn't supposed to be hanging out with. Tax collectors of the day were seen, were thought of in a negative light. They were seen as crooks. They were seen as, as robbers. They were seen as very bad people. And so Jesus, because he's Jesus, right, calls this guy who society rejects, society wants nothing to do with. He says, come, follow me. You're a perfect candidate to be one of my disciples. He still does that, by the way, if you're screwed up and messed up. He still calls messed up and screwed up people to follow him. And he still does great things with them. But he does that at the very beginning of Matthew 9. Of, of Matthew 9. He calls Matthew. Matthew lounges with him. And then the very next story, some Pharisees come to Jesus. They're the religious rulers of the day. They come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, why aren't your disciples, the people that are following you the closest, your closest friends, why aren't they fasting like the Jewish rituals say they should? And that's when Jesus makes that comment. If you remember, he says, why should I put old, don't put old wine into new wineskins? Basically what he was saying is he's saying, you see, these people that are following me, they're not following the Jewish customs because I've come and they realize that I am bigger. They realize that I am, am, am eternal. They realize that I'm the son of God. They realize that I'm about to change everything. And so they don't need to fast right now because why would they fast when they have the living, breathing Christ in their midst? And so Jesus just has that conversation when a guy who Matthew 9 says is a ruler in the synagogue, comes up to him, and I can imagine he's, he's in a hurry, and he's kind of pushing through a crowd of people because, after all, Jesus was, was, was used to doing weird things, freaky things, and, and I can imagine he's pushing through a crowd of people as Jesus is answering the Pharisees' questions, and he's like, Jesus, Jesus, I need you. I know that you can do this. We find in the book of Mark, this guy's name is Jairus. He says, I need you. My daughter, she's back home, and she's dead, but I believe that if you'll just come and if you'll touch her, that I believe you can make the dead alive. So Jesus turns to Jairus with sympathy in his heart, and he says, I'll come. So as Jesus and Jairus are, are on their way to his house, Jesus kind of has this encounter that it's easy to skip over. If you're reading through this passage of Scripture, it's really easy because it's only just a few verses. But he has this encounter with this lady, and I want you to, to read in Matthew 9.20. It says this. It says, Just then, a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up behind him, and she touched the fringe of his robe. This lady had suffered from menstrual bleeding for 12 years. So with that condition in this society, this day and age, she would have been seen as someone that was unclean. Like she would have been put in the same place as the lepers. She would have been considered this in, in, in the same conversation as the really sick people. By Jewish customs, she was unclean. She wasn't fit for anything because she had this issue. It wasn't her fault, but because of the times of the day, she was considered unclean. It was a risk. 
for her to even be in the crowd that day. It was a risk for her to even be willing to touch Jesus that day. I mean, she could have had some serious stuff happen to her had she been caught, this unclean lady amongst these people. But she did it anyway. Matthew 9, 20. I love that it says that she came up from behind. How many of you ever feel behind? Do y'all feel behind? One honest person? Because here's, here's what I picture. I picture that this lady, who we don't know her name, but I picture that this lady who comes up from behind Jesus, I think that the reason that it says, and it says very specifically that she comes up from behind Jesus is because she was someone who often felt behind. Because of her bleeding, because of her unclean cleanliness, a perceived uncleanliness, she was somebody that always felt behind. For some of us, and this is where it gets into our thinking, for some of you, the thoughts in your head, you've been thinking for so long that you're behind or that you're not good enough or that you're behind the crowd or that you're out of the crowd or that you're out of the in crowd or that you can't catch up or that you can't make ends meet. And you've been thinking that for so long that it's kept you from even wanting to touch Jesus. Because you know that if you try to touch him, it's going to cause some vulnerability. And so you feel behind. Too many people, and you can write this down if you, if, if you have a pen. Do people steal y'all's pens too? Or do y'all tell them to? Do they just take them? Yeah. Uh, about once a quarter, um, we have a lot of people that just bring them all back at one time. Um, but, but, that, but that's cool. It's, it's good advertisement. But if you have a pen, here's what I want you to write down. Uh, this isn't going to be on the screen. Too many people let their place in life determine their pattern of thought. Too many Jesus believers let their place in life, being behind, perceived being behind, determine their pattern of thought. And so this lady who's been bleeding for 12 years, we don't know how it started. We don't know what happened, but we know that she is behind. We know that she's left out, but we also know that she is going to force her way to the front of the crowd. You see, the problem with, with, with letting our minds dwell on our position, being behind, is that it becomes a never-ending loop. And so what you do is you begin to think, I am so bad, or my situation's so bad, or they're so bad, or this is so bad. And so what it does is it begins to create this loop in your mind, and so you constantly feel behind. And so every time you try to run to catch up, your mind takes you right back there. Every time you run to try to get ahead, your mind takes you right back there. Every time you run to try to repair that relationship, your mind remembers what was in the past, and you're behind. So you let your place in life affect your pattern of thought. Matthew 9.21, and this is the golden nugget in this whole little story here. Matthew 9.21, for she thought... If I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. So let me read those two verses together. Matthew 9, 20 through 21. Just then, a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe. For she thought. Now, the fact that it says for she thought, you can kind of take she thought and move it to the beginning of the verse, right? Because, because she had thought she did something because it was in her mind because she thought of something. It made her, it caused her to react in a certain way. For she thought, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Our thoughts matter. 
Our thoughts matter because our thoughts change what we do, changes who we are. We have to have freaky thoughts. We have to have different thoughts than the, than the casual person who's behind because by the grace of God, by the grace of Jesus, we are not behind. Once we touch, once we get to Jesus, so many things that we put on ourselves begin in our mind. Our emotional state begins in our mind. I'm someone who can quickly become down because of what I think in my mind. I'm someone who can quickly dwell on what I, who I'm not because of what I allow to be in my mind. Bitterness begins in your thought. Because I see somebody and I remember what they did, and so I'm constantly thinking about it. Every time I look at them, I see that instead of seeing them, or I see their fault instead of seeing grace. And so bitterness begins to build up in my life because of something that I think. Jealousy begins in our mind. Because I want what somebody else has. I become jealous. And it becomes a cycle of thought. It becomes a thought pattern that I allow myself to dwell on. Pride begins in the mind. I look at something or I look at somebody and, 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 and pride isn't just elevating yourself, but pride is also devaluing others. And so pride begins in the mind because I begin to think in order to get myself higher, in order to get myself to somewhere else, I have to devalue other people. And so we begin to try to think. Y'all, do y'all do this? So you begin to try to think what so-and-so doesn't have, what you have over so-and-so, what, you, what, what, what so-and-so wants that you have. And so pride begins as this pattern of thought. Uselessness begins in the mind. So many people are deflated in the church because they feel useless. But it's not something that God has endorsed in you. It's because of something that's in your mind. Something's been put there, and you're dwelling on it, and you're allowing it to, you're allowing it to stay there, and you're constantly replanting it in your mind. Uselessness begins in the mind. An affair begins in the mind. How we think changes what we do. We begin to see somebody, and we think, if I could just get them to look at me. Or we see something, and we're thinking, I would love for this to happen. And so we begin to dwell on it. And so that thought that becomes, begins to cycle in our mind pretty soon begins to play out in our life. Things like debt begin in our mind. Because we see something and we want it, or we see somebody and we want to be like them, and so we begin to accumulate this debt. And it begins in our mind. It's because we devalue ourselves, and in our mind we're thinking that we're not good unless we have something. And so we build up debt, and we borrow money, and it's this never-ending cycle because we continue to play it out in our heads. Things like slander begin in the mind. Murder begins in the mind. Our thoughts are powerful. Our thoughts matter. What you let come into your mind and what you allow yourself to dwell on, it matters. Don't underestimate it because thoughts ignite, ignite faith. That's what it did for this lady. Matthew 9, 22 goes on to say, Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, when he saw her, now, now keep in mind who this lady is. She's the unclean one. She's the one who, who, who has been shunned by society. But it says, Jesus turned around. I, for a believer, for a believer in Christ, someone who realizes that they needed Christ for their salvation, and there was this void, there was this space between you and God, and Jesus was willing to die for it. It is an, a spiritual impossibility for you to be useless. 
It's a spiritual impossibility for you to feel like or for you to truly be useless in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus, as he's doing, this, as he's doing with this lady who's supposedly unclean by society standards, Jesus turns around, he looks her in the face, and he acknowledges her. He says, you're useful. If you feel useless this morning, know that Jesus is acknowledging you. He's, he, he, he's turned around, he's looked at this unclean woman. That wasn't in my notes, that was free. Go on. Matthew 9, 22. Jesus turned around, and when he saw, when he saw her, he said, daughter, he called her daughter. That's pretty cool too, right? Jesus said, daughter, be encouraged. Your faith has made you well, and the woman was healed at that moment. So the lady the thought that began in her mind, if I can just touch Jesus, if I can just get to Jesus, the thought that started in her mind transformed her faith. Our thoughts matter and our faith follows. The reason that it's so important for you and I to guard what comes into our minds is because eventually it seeps into our heart. And it transforms our faith. It transforms what we love. It transforms what we believe. Because it's just the natural progression. It's the way you're wired. Our thoughts matter because our faith follows. Sometimes you got to fake it till you feel it. Y'all ever have to do that? And so, I mean, you're thinking, you're thinking, man, today is going to suck. I've got to go to so-and-so. I'm still working beside so-and-so. Then I got to go to my kid's soccer game. He stinks at soccer. They're going to lose. And I'm going to have to cheer them on anyway, even though they lost. And so you're thinking, man, this day is going to stink. Sometimes you have to fake it till you feel it. Because if you allow yourself to dwell on that day, then immediately it's ruined. Because you've taken something that isn't even happened yet, and you've turned it into something in your mind. And so it transforms everything you do that day. It transforms your outlook on that day. Sometimes you got to fake it till you feel it. The first time I tried Thai food. Anybody like Thai food? Holla. The first time I tried Thai food. Was I, was I not supposed to say suck? Okay, because they looked at me weird. Okay, um... The first time I tried, sorry, I had to get past that. The first time I tried Thai food, I went with somebody, and it's kind of one of those situations, and we've all, we've all been there. It's kind of one of those situations where you feel like you, have to, like you have to do it, like somebody invites you somewhere, and you feel like you have to go. So the first time I tried Thai food, somebody invited me, and I had to go. They were, I knew they were going to pay. I knew it was, it was something that I, need, it was, I needed something from them, as bad as that sounds. And so they invited me to Thai food. And so the whole way there, I'm trying to make out like I like Thai food, right? And this is kind of where I learned this principle because in my mind, I remember thinking, okay, this is, this is good. It's okay. It's going to be good. It's kind of like Chinese, only different. And so I began to kind of justify this in my mind. I like this. I like this. I like this. So we sit down, sitting across from this person, um, looking at the menu. I'm like, hey, what, what are you going to have? What's good here? You know, like, I've never been to this place. What's good here? It's, you know, it's kind of like I've been to other places like this. But what's good here? I, I didn't know. I didn't know what the menu meant. And so he tells me what he's going to order. He's like, I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to have that too. I didn't know what it was. Sure enough, I've psyched myself up for this. Sure enough, the meal comes. You know what? Not bad. Because I thought, I, you, sometimes you have to fake it till you feel it. Now, today, I beg my wife to go eat Thai, but she doesn't like it still because she hasn't been able to fake it till she feels it, which, after my sermon today, may mean that she's not as spiritual as I am, but that's okay. Sometimes, got a long drive back to South Carolina. Um, 
but sometimes we have to fake it till we feel it because what's in our mind is going to transpire into our lives and into our heart. Jesus tells this lady, he says, your faith has made you well. I think it's kind of funny in that passage, if you read it, that Jesus didn't look back at her and say, because you touched me, it made you well. He didn't say, because you were able to, to, to nudge your way through the crowd, you've been healed. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. What I believe Jesus is telling her, I believe he's saying to this no-named woman who covers like four verses of Scripture, I believe what he's saying is he's saying, you get it. Your faith has made you well because you get it. Because a lot of these other people around me, these Pharisees who have just asked me these rude and outrageous questions, they think I'm a good person. Like they've seen me teach. They think I teach with authority and they understand that, but they don't really get it. He's saying this guy named Jairus, who's a ruler in the synagogue, he thinks I can heal his daughter and he's absolutely right, but he doesn't still quite get it. What he's telling this lady, whose mind has transformed her faith, is he's saying, you get it, you understand, and you want me not just to heal you, but you want me to transform you. Because Jesus understood that this lady knew that he was the only one that her life hinged on. It's still that way today. He's the only one that can save. He's the only one who can transform our lives. Sure, he, he, wants to, he still wants to heal. He still wants to teach us. He still wants to walk with us. But ultimately, he wants to transform our eternity. He's looking at this lady. He's saying, you get it. You understand. Some of us touch Jesus every day. We come to church. We touch him. We see him. But we never really believe him. You see, when it comes to faith, and when it comes to asking Jesus to do something, the question never is, can he? The question is, do we? Does that make sense? When it comes to what Jesus wants to do in your life, it's not can he or what you're praying for, that prayer that you've been begging God for. The question isn't can he? God doesn't always do what we ask him. Don't get me wrong, but he certainly could, Right? The question is not, can he? The question is, do we believe him? Do we believe him that he really knows what's best? Do we really, do we believe him and do we, do, do, do we have faith in him like this lady did so that he can actually, so that we can actually move out of the way and allow him to work in our lives? The question when we're begging God for something is never, can he? But it's, do we? Because God can. But do we? Do we believe that when all hell seems to be breaking out around us. Do we truly believe that God can? Or are we stuck in this thought pattern that he never has and he never will? This lady believed that he can. How you think about Jesus determines how you live for him. The thoughts that we have about who Jesus is, the thoughts that we have about about what makes, what makes him, the thoughts that we have about how he came about, the thoughts that we have about how much Jesus loves us, all of those things determine how we live for him. Because what starts in our mind impacts what's in our heart. This lady started out with a thought, if I could just touch him, for she thought, if I could just touch him, if I could just get to him, I believe, I have faith that he's going to change me. 
there's a, there's a battle for our mind. The church today, the believers of the Bible today, there's a battle for our mind. We're being infiltrated with so many other things that there's this battle waging in the spiritual realm, and it's over our mind because Satan understands that if he can win the battle on our mind, he's going to win the battle of our heart. There's a battle for our mind. So how do, we, how, how, do, how, do we, how do we do this? Like if I feel useless, if I'm stuck in this, this, this thought cycle of uselessness, or if I'm stuck in this thought cycle of, 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 of lust, or if I'm stuck in this thought cycle of bitterness, or if I'm stuck in this thought cycle, whatever it might be, how do I get rid of it? I believe it's two things. Number one, just like this lady did, we believe that we're desperate. You have to start from a place of desperation. Because desperation means I know I need to change. Number two, we have to realize who Jesus can make us. That's what this lady did. She understood that Jesus could transform her life. I love the book of Romans, and that's actually where this whole message kind of came about. I've been reading through the book of Romans for, or I had been for the couple of weeks. And uh, the book of Romans kind of really talks a lot about our mind. And Paul, and Paul kind of talks a good bit about, about how to guard your mind and, and, and how, how your mind can, can, can impact your life. And so in Romans 8... Paul begins to kind of build this argument over our minds and what, our, what it means to, 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 to think and what it, how powerful it is to, 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 to have the, the, the victory over our mind. And in Romans 8.31, he starts out by saying, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? So in other words, Paul's making this argument, and, he, and, and he's saying, think about this. If God is for you, then you can think like God is for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? This is kind of like the, the language that he's using here is kind of in a courtroom case. He's saying, who could even bring a case against you? Because God is for you. If we're going to change the way we think and the way we believe and the way we live, we have to understand that God is for us. That's the first thought change we have to make. Because a lot of times it feels like he's not. If God is for you, who can be against us? goes on to say in verse 32, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Paul was saying, you can think. You can think so much better than what you are because God was willing to hold nothing back. A lot of biblical scholars think right there he's kind of making a making an argument back to the story of Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham? Abraham and his wife Sarah wanted kids. So God took him outside one day and said, I want you to look at the stars. And Abraham's like, yeah, those are pretty. God says, no, it's more than that. He says, look at the stars. You're going to have descendants as numerous as those stars. Abraham's like, I'm pretty old, dude. He and his wife Sarah, they're, they're pushing 100. And he's like, are you for real, for real? God says, yeah. And so over the next 20 years or so, Abraham begins to have to believe God that he's going to have, a, he and his wife Sarah are going to have a child even though they're, they're this old. They go through some different things. God keeps having to remind them, you are going to have a child like I promise. And so sure enough, finally, after they laugh in the face of God a couple of times, finally God delivers on his promise. He gives them a child almost 100 years old. Imagine that. They say that young people have kids for a reason, right? But Abraham and Sarah, got one amen. But Abraham and Sarah are 100 years old and they have a child. Not long after that, after they've already been proved that they're faithful with who they think God is, God tests Abraham. He says, I want you to get up early in the morning. I want you to go out, and I want you to sacrifice your son. During the day, 
that wouldn't be quite looked at the way it is now. But I want you to go sacrifice your son. So sure enough, they get up in the morning. He takes his son. They go to the altar. And right as he has the death cleaver that he's about to kill his son with drawn, God says, no. Now I know that your heart is fully mine. Don't do it. What Paul is saying is he's saying the God of the universe, the one that created those stars that Abraham looked up in the sky and saw, the one who gave Abraham and Sarah a child at 100 years old, that God was willing to go through sacrificing his son. That's how important you are. Change how you think about yourself because the God of the universe believes that you are more. Paul goes on to say, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. We can't even make a case against ourselves as believers in Jesus. We can't even make a case against ourselves that we're worthless because of what God has done. But that's the normal thing, right? I mean, the default is to let those thoughts of uselessness, to let those thoughts that shouldn't be in our minds, to let them sit there. It's freaky to get those thoughts out. It's freaky to turn those bad thoughts into real faith like the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years did. It's weird, but it can be done. Verse 34, who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. We have to think like the winners we are. We can't allow our place, however we feel that is, to determine our pattern of thought because that's going to change our life. There's people in here this morning, and you don't have a good view of yourself, and it's because you've never accepted Christ as your Savior who can change that view of yourself. If that's you this morning, Pastor Kevin's going to come up and talk about a card in just a minute. Can you indicate on there that you want to receive Christ? Somebody will be in contact with you. Matter of fact, we can go ahead and do that right now. Every head bowed and every eye closed. There's some people in this room I really do feel like that um, I've got just, just a couple more minutes, Kevin. Um, there's some people in this room this morning, and you really do feel like that you're useless. And you know what? Apart from Jesus, you're not near enough. You can't measure up. If you're in this room this morning, you need to accept Christ as your Savior. Just say in your heart, Jesus, I know I've messed up. I know I'm a sinner. But I believe you can reverse that. I believe you are so much more than just a genie in a bottle or just somebody that I can come and learn about or just even a healer. But I believe you are a transformer, an eternity transformer. I believe you're the son of God. Come into my life, change my life. My life is no longer my own. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.